Join with me in prayer. To our holy God, we gather to await your instructions to us for holy living based upon your holy scriptures that are delivered to us through the Holy Spirit who moves our hearts to respond to your truth. So we ask, Father, and thank you for the power of God that is among us and in us. We now ask, Father, that we might take seriously your word to our lives and that we might experience the changes that are necessary through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, conforming us into the image of Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray, amen. Raising children, as many of you have done, I think one of the more difficult things to deal with is to try and explain to little hearts why Christians can be so mean to one another. And I think there are more than a few lives that have been shipwrecked because Christians are angry with one another and hold grudges against one another and mistreat one another and say all kinds of nasty things about one another. And coming off of this past two years health crisis, we have said a lot of bad things to each other. There's been a lot of anger and there continues to be the aftermath of anger, broken relationships, trouble in homes, trouble in families. The Lord Jesus has something to say, to that, say about that to us today. I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 5. We're going to look at Matthew 5, 21 to 26. I think history, the history of religion would validate that religion has done a lot of damage to people. Religion in italics. We hear that a lot and we, we get defensive when we hear that usually. We're like, you know, stop blaming religion for everybody's problems. But in truth, I'm talking about the big word religion has done a lot of damage to people. You know, Jesus is teaching the moral commands of God, the moral law of God. He's not abrogating it, it's not abolishing it. We already learned that last week. We see that in the verses right before. In context, it's important to realize that that Jesus came, we know, to fulfill the law, which in some cases was completed by Christ, and in other cases, he carries it on, particularly the moral law of God. Jesus has come to show us and explain to us fully the moral law of God. And, and he's going to say today, you've heard it said that do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. He's already said to the group who had gathered around him, his disciples and others who were eavesdropping, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And the backdrop for that is the simple fact that while the Pharisees were teaching, do not murder, they were plotting to kill Jesus. 
In, in fact, not only were they plotting to kill Jesus, but something I encountered this week over again and, and had, uh, had not uh, uh, taken note of it for a while is that they were plotting to kill Lazarus as well. In John chapter 12, verse 10 and 11, it says there, so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well as Jesus. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him. So here's the law of God being taught by the Pharisees, the scribes, the seminary professors, uh, and all of those that you must not murder while they themselves were plotting murder of Jesus and Lazarus. Because Lazarus was walking evidence that Jesus could raise people from the dead. So, when Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not murder, but I tell you that anyone who's angry, and, and, and Jesus uses the phrase, but I tell you, Jesus is not changing the law. He's already said he's not, he's not come to abolish the law. The progressives like to suggest that Jesus, here, here's examples, the next six lessons are examples of Jesus changing the law. Jesus never changed the law. Never changed the moral law. He came to fully explain the moral law. And the contrast here is set up uh, against the, the Pharisees, against Jesus. Keep in mind, Jesus is the author of the Old Testament law. Everything that's written is from Jesus. He gave us the scriptures. And so he has the authority to then explain the scriptures to those who would be willing to listen. It's very possible to miss the point of the Sermon on the Mount if, if, un, unless we pay attention to two possible veer-offs that we can take. One is to suggest or to think that um, um, people are using the law, like the Pharisees, in a hard-hearted way. It's possible to be hard-hearted and keep the law. In fact, regularly, Hard-hearted people are very good at keeping the letter of the law. But they have no concept of the point of the law, the, the moral point of it, which was being demonstrated by the fact that they were plotting to kill Jesus and plotting to kill Lazarus. Somehow they were exonerating themselves for doing that while keeping the law. The, op the other way that we can veer is to suggest, like the pro progressives, that Jesus somehow was changing the law and that we can reinterpret the law to suit our current context. Both directions are fatal. It's not what Jesus did at all. Jesus came to change hearts. And the, the point of the moral law is to change hearts. It's to, it's to examine hearts. It's to, it's to put the searchlight on our hearts. When we open up the law of God, it shines a searchlight on our hearts and surfaces dark places that we didn't want to see. The number one problem, or at least a huge problem among Christians is, the, is that we aren't nice. We aren't nice to each other. It's a big-time Christian problem. 
And so I've entitled this section on murder, entitled in the New Testament, Handling Anger. Because that's what Jesus is going to teach us. Jesus is going to show us that before murder can happen, there's a number of things that go haywire in our hearts. And he shows us this. So he says to them, you've you've just heard the rules and more rules from the Pharisees, and, and they don't fix anything. They just tell you something's wrong. Something's wrong with your heart, but God wants a different heart in terms of kingdom citizens. And the one thing we learn from this is that God is intolerant of hurting people, hurting other people. If you want to understand what God is not tolerant of, he's not tolerant of hurting other people. And what he's going to teach us, we're just going to take a small section today, but what he's going to teach us in the next number of lessons in the Sermon on the Mount is about deep healing of the heart, of reaching into the deeper broken places of our hearts and how the law takes us there, how the law shows us that there's something very bad about your heart that you're contemplating murder, like the Pharisees, for instance. So um, the law, the rules, the commands of God are about good relationships that avoid hurting people. That's why the Ten Commandments are really, were summarized by Jesus this way, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, body, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Because the Ten Commandments are all about good relationships with God and with one another. That's what the commands intended for us to derive. So here we are with Jesus giving explanation. And, and it was, it's interesting because the Apostle Paul kind of delivers to us an aha moment in Romans chapter 7. And I think it's worth looking there for a few moments to, to, to see what he discovered. In Romans chapter 7, if you remember, Paul is kind of having a, a heart-to-heart moment with his own emotions. And he's saying, you know, the the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. And he's really frustrated with his life and how it's going. And then he gives us this insight into what he learned about the commands of God. In in Romans 7, verse 7, it says this, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. See, the searchlight. Now listen, for I would not have known that what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. Now, this is, this is very, very interesting here. Paul picks out one commandment. And the commandment he picks out is not actually a deed, but rather a desire. So, so Paul discovers here, it's my heart that's the problem. The law isn't the problem. The law is good. The law helps me to see what is my problem. My problem is my heart, Paul says. And the law helped me to see that when I realized that that to have a desire to have people's things is a, a problem that I have with my heart. And the law took me there and showed me that it's my heart that's the problem. Jesus is going to do the very same thing with us today. He's going to take us from the law to show us our hearts that we might understand what the law actually teaches us. It teaches us about our hearts. So, 
As we look at this today, I think the big question that Jesus is really asking of the Pharisees and anyone else who's around listening, what's in your heart? Not what's in your wallet, what's in your heart? That, that there perhaps isn't a more important question for human beings to answer. What's in your heart? And God's word pushes us pushes us to, to answer that question. And this command, do not murder, pushes us to answer that question. Because I'm pretty sure that no one in here has ever murdered anybody. Probably you'd be incarcerated if you had. So a command like this, do not murder, most of us can say, thanks very much. I haven't. I'm in good shape. See you later. Jesus doesn't leave us there because the law won't leave us there. There are steps, there are things that happen before murder. So when someone angers you, ever been angered by anybody? Probably once a day, maybe. If you commute into Toronto, you're angered multiple times a day. There and on the way back. And then you kick the dog when you get home to take it out on something, or maybe the cat, because you like dogs, you don't like cats. <laughs> Do you want to murder them? Well, maybe not that far. Do you want to cancel them? You look around, are these my friends on Facebook? Because I'm unfriending them right now. The way they're driving, I'm unfriending them, that's it. Now, by the way, murder is not war, it's not self-defense, it's not capital punishment. Let's get that out there right now. So what's Jesus talking about here? He says, but I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. The critical word in this, this statement that Jesus is making is the word is. The word is. But I tell you that anyone who is presently angry, it's the idea of carried anger. Carried anger creates a murderous heart. It, it's, it's about nurturing anger in your heart. It's about harboring anger. Someone's done something to you and you're angry with them. And now it's about being angry, continuing to be angry. Anyone who is angry keeps staying angry. You can't help but get angry. In fact, it's a God-given emotion. That's why Paul writes to the Ephesians that in your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. In your anger, because ang anger is a good emotion if it's channeled in the right way. To take care of an injustice, for instance. Usually God has to stir our hearts up to, to, angry, to be angry with a situation before we'll do something about it. There's nothing wrong with anger if it's used righteously. But to harbor something, to harbor bitterness, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> sorry, this is allergy season for me, so. I've been sucking halls all morning, so. Here, forgive me. 
If you harbor something in your heart and hold a grudge and you're, you remain angry, staying angry, that's why when we train our little kids to pray at the end of the day, you ask them a question. Before we go to the Lord in prayer, are you angry with anybody? Because you can't let the sun go down in your anger. Are you angry with dad? Because that's usually what ki- who kids are angry with. You angry with dad? You need to forgive him, not be angry. Go make it up with him. That, that's, that's how we teach our children early to offload anger so that it doesn't become a sin. Because Jesus is making the point here. Do you notice what he says here? Anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. It's the same liability as if you've murdered somebody. Do you see the phrase before? Do not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Jesus makes the same statement. A decision to stay angry, to harbor ill feelings, holding on to mad. The word for anger here is like madness. To hold on to madness is subject to the same judgment as if you physically murdered a person. Now, we don't think about, we don't think on those terms because we just want to skim the surface of the commandments and say like the Pharisees, well, I haven't done that. But Jesus is saying the, the point of the law is to show you your heart. And if your heart is holding a grudge and anger, bitterness towards someone, you're harboring a murderous heart. Jesus does not justify the continuation of anger ever. In fact, he judges it. Now, some of you, if you have the translation, the King James Version or the New King James Version, it might say, um, I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother without a cause will be subject. That is not found in the oldest manuscripts. I don't believe that that's what Jesus said. That's just another way of getting kind of off the hook. Well, I can, I can come up with a cause of why I'm angry and why I'm holding anger against someone. Jesus didn't say that. This is what he said. Anyone who is continuing to be angry with his brother will be subject to judgment, liable to the judgment of God. Found liable. And here's the problem. Here's what anger sounds like, Jesus goes on to say. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the the Sinedrian. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of fire of hell. Jesus is now saying that, that, that carried anger produces harmful sounds out of your mouth. It makes your tongue a murderer. Long before you murder someone, you speak badly of them. You demean them. Jesus uses two terms here. Because what starts in the heart invariably makes its way to the lips. It does. And so he says, you know, if you say raka to someone, and that's not a term that we generally use. It actually was considered an Aramaic swear word to call someone raka. 
Because raka means contemptible airhead. Say, wait, I, I might have used that word once in a while. Contemptible airhead. It's calling someone an idiot. Calling someone stupid. Calling someone mentally incompetent. An, a mentally incompetent good for nothing. It's, it's dismissing someone as valueless. And then he says, if you call someone a fool, you'll be in danger of the fire of hell. A, a fool is an immoral moron. You're now, you're now not only making a judgment about their mental abilities, you're making a judgment on, about their moral abilities, their moral stand, their, their moral position. You're calling them a jerk, a rat, morally dull, vile, and not worthy of love. You're treating people with contempt. Now, why do you suppose that Jesus would define this kind of behavior as sinful? Might it have something to do with the fact that all of us are created in the image of God? When you call another human being, you dismiss them as valueless, or you treat them with contempt that they don't even deserve to be alive. You are insulting the living God. Every trying person in our lives, you got any trying people in your life? They just try you. Sometimes it's that one kid in the family. They're usually most like you. And they really try you. They really try you. Every trying person in your life is an opportunity, okay, listen, is an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to transform your life into the image of Christ. That's what he's teaching here. How to teach and practice kingdom citizen living that mirrors the glory of Christ. That's what he's teaching. It's, it's stunning. So God's wrath, which is articulated here in judgment, look at the words, liable to judgment, liable to judgment, answerable to the supreme court, in danger of the fire of hell. Does any of this stuff seem light to you? This seems like pretty heavy consequences. This is not stuff just to, to sort of, that's nice, Jesus, that was an interesting dialogue that you had with the Pharisees. Now, this is a, an urgent message that the Holy Spirit is having with my heart and your heart. That's what this is. So we like to, we like to look for loopholes. So we look at this text and we say, well, is this only the way I have to treat brothers? Can I treat like the guy who cut me off in the 401? Can I call him a raka? Because he's not my brother? 
And others, others like to look and say, is there a gradient to judgment here? We go from judgment to the Supreme Court to the fire of hell. You know, should I be concerned about saying one thing more than the other? Because maybe, you know, rack I go to the Supreme Court, fool, I go to hell. Um, okay, I won't say fool. Is that what Jesus is really getting to here? Because you'll notice when he says fool, he doesn't talk about calling your brother a fool. I would submit to you that the safest thing in terms of divided interpreters when we look at this text is to say that Jesus is completely intolerant of his children hurting people. I think that's the safest thing to say. We, we know that for sure from the text. And that's why he says, therefore, not only... Do you need to be concerned about your, you, you being angry with someone and harboring that, but you need to be concerned about the possibility that you have done something to someone and is causing them to harbor anger in their hearts. Jesus never lets anybody off the hook. He considers all the possibilities. And so you have here, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. He's talking about this gathering today. What do we do when we have angered someone, when we know that someone is harboring anger toward us? What, what do we do when we, we come to the gathering, to the worship gathering? Jesus gives us an altar call here today. A very critical altar call that requires a right relationship with people before a right relationship with God is even possible. Jesus is, is pointing out here that the first thing, the first priority of you coming together and gathering to worship me in this worship gathering is the state of your heart with one another. He, he makes the point here that at our worship gatherings, they're intended to provide honesty about our relationships with God and with one another. That when we gather, we are assuming together that we are in good space with God and with each other. We owe it to each other to be in good space with God and with each other because he makes a significantly urgent point that the first responsibility is reconciliation because if you're harboring something in your heart with, against someone, it's sinful. You're coming into worship with known sin that's presently active in your life. Yeah, I'm convinced that the reason that we in the North American church or the Church of the West or wherever you want to, are not seeing the kind of intense Holy Spirit blessings and activities that the early church got to witness is because we've become so dull of hearing the Lord and, and what he instructs us in, in, with respect to our relationships with one another and with God. When we are offering our, our praise to the Lord in songs, he only hears us 
if we're in right relationship with one another. God, our vertical relationship with God is entirely dependent upon our horizontal relationship with one another. God will not bless a gathering or bless a group of people who are harboring malice and anger and grudges and bitterness against one another. It's something he won't tolerate. You can't be in, and and frankly, you can't be in God's presence with the Holy Spirit present, praising the Lord in songs, praying to the Lord, hearing the word of God proclamation, and not have the Holy Spirit put your heart in a full Nelson or a figure four or whatever is the new submissive hold now. Or you... I, I, I struggle to believe that you really are a believer. When you get alone with God and you are in prayer and you're in scripture, invariably, the Holy Spirit brings up stuff that you have to deal with. And so are our worship gatherings. This is the first priority. When it comes to being right with either God or a brother and sister, there is no either or. It is both and or neither. We've said before, and you've heard it before, you can't have your sin and God too. And harboring anger, anyone who is angry is under the judgment of God. You are harboring sin. You can't have God and sin. This is a call to action. This is not a call to education. We know this. We've been educated this. This is not a new passage. Is this new to anybody? Have you never heard this passage before? Maybe there might be the odd person. You know this. You've heard this. And and the Lord is calling us to an urgency with this, that you know that someone has something against you. Now, it's presupposing that you've done something to somebody that you know about, okay? This is not about, you know, you looked sideways at somebody and they thought you were angry at them and you had no idea what you did and they're harboring anger. How can you know that? You can't know that. This is not that. This is you've done something to somebody and you know that it's off. You know there's something off. You know you've made them angry. Even if it wasn't something that even, you you need to deal with that. Go and be reconciled, the Lord says, because the Lord doesn't want to talk to someone who's not talking to someone. Both of you are alienated from God. And you're responsible. The early church, there's a report out of the Didache, which is really significant for us today. It talks about before worship. Now, we're going back to the early first century, first, second, third centuries. The early church. This is not scripture. This is commentary on the practice, the application of scripture in the early church, okay? The Didache. And it was their practice before worship to have Holy Communion. But before they would have Holy Communion, they would have the kiss of peace. Something we've cut out for the last two years. And on the Lord, and here's here's the wording. And on the Lord's own day, gather yourselves together and break bread and give thanks first. First. 
confessing your transgressions, your sins, that your sacrifice might, may be pure, your sacrifice of praise. And let no one having a dispute with a fellow join your assembly until they have been reconciled, that your sacrifice may not be defiled. If you are unreconciled with someone, your praise, your, what you sang today is defiled. If you're out of sorts with someone and angry with someone, or you've caused someone to be angry with you and you haven't dealt with it, your prayer is a defilement to God. Your hearing of the proclamation of God's word is falling on deaf ears. It's, it's a defilement to God. It might be a good idea for the church to reintroduce this reconciling practice, which remains now mainly in the somewhat perfunctory greet one another, which is not it. It was the practice in the early church for members to circulate for some time, greeting and confessing to one another before communion. Because they took this seriously. And we must as well. Let me wrap this up as Jesus does. He wraps it up with urgency. Settle matters quickly with your adversaries taking you to court. The anger now has settled itself in someone's heart to the degree that they're taking you to court. Now I want you to know that this is a true life illustration that Jesus is using but it has a double meaning to it. Because Jesus in this story is the judge. The Supreme Court is the divine counsel of the triune God. The, the judgment that will be meted out is based upon what Christ intends to do. So Jesus now gives a court call which expresses best the seriousness of provoking people to anger, to harbor anger. Jesus is saying, fix things quickly. ASAP, you know, you know that if you let something fester in your heart for weeks or months, or in some cases in people's lives, years, they're not speaking to someone, it becomes virtually impossible to deal with it. And Jesus says, that's not okay. We're gonna just agree to, to not talk to each other for the rest of our lives and harbor bitterness and grudge. Oh, that's okay. No, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. Now, he's talking about himself. He's talking about final judgment. Fix things. If you procrastinate, you will pay dearly in this life and in the life to come. How can any of us guarantee even 15 minutes more life? And you haven't fixed something? If you don't take care of this kind of trouble, your time might run out. And you might be put in the hands of the eternal judge 
and face summary judgment that has no possibility for reparation, only judgment. The picture here is of the perpetrator who has stolen something or whatever and the plaintiff has grabbed the defendant by the scruff of the neck and the cloak and is twisting it and is prancing them off to court. Okay, that's the picture. And that's not a, a, an imaginary picture. It's a real life thing that happened back then. It's, it's called uh, apogage. It's, it's a summary act arrest where the plaintiff was entirely empowered to march the defendant off to court. We don't get to do that now. None of us have probably been sitting in the same car with plaintiff and defendant on our way to court. So we're like, ah, this, this doesn't, I, I don't know this kind of thing. The plaintiff is Jesus. And he has you by the scruff of the neck if you've got something going on with somebody. And he's prancing you off to judgment unless you deal with it. Procrastination in fixing wrongs exacts an unthinkable toll, which is potentially an unpayable debt. Who are the ones who are blessed? Jesus has already said. Isn't it the merciful, the pure of heart, the peacemakers? Again, you can't know what you can't know. You can't know what you don't know. But what you do know, you need to fix. ASAP. One commentator has said this, anger carried and vented is a last judgment and hell deserving crime. That's the language that's being used here. You don't take care of your sinful heart that's harmful and hurting people. If you don't take it to task now, you may find yourself dealing with the judge of all the earth. Then. So those who are, whose righteousness surpasses the Pharisees are empowered to practice and teach the removal of carried anger. You can do this. I can do this. We can do this. It's not like we've never been guilty of this. This is what we're talking, this that we're talking about is, is deep healing of the heart where Jesus alone can work and change you. To interpret Commandment number six, thou shalt not murder correctly, involves being eager to get rid of all anger towards anyone and to get right with anyone to whom you've caused anger. ASAP. This is how kingdom citizens, this is, this is the king addressing his citizens and how we are to live in the kingdom as those truly empowered with the righteousness of Christ, a righteousness that surpasses the Pharisees, a righteousness from Christ. If you have that righteousness, you can do this. You can live this way. 
through the power of the Holy Spirit working in your life. No grudges, no unreconciled relationships. Is that you? Is that me? Our Father and our God, these are serious words that you have delivered to us from the heart of Jesus to our hearts, teaching us that the law is a searchlight to examine broken and harmful hearts, that Jesus died on a cross of Calvary and rose again to grant us the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to have hearts that are pure, merciful, peacemaking, and thereby to live out the righteousness of Christ. So I do pray, Lord, this morning that you will encourage our hearts with these words. Thank you for your warning. We've heard now. There's no reason why we can't act on this. And I pray, Lord, that you will soften layers of calloused hardness, that the Holy Spirit might be allowed to truly shape our hearts today and in the coming days as we make things right with people so that nothing might be in the way of our sacrifice of praise, our relationship with you, our conversations with you, the empowerment that you're willing to give those who are willing to serve you in these ways. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. A couple of thoughts as we head out this morning. Keep in mind that Jesus would never apologize for showing you your sin. So you can't say, well, I'm angry at Jesus now because he pointed out my sin. That doesn't work that way. Jesus is talking about legitimately hurting one another or holding grudges, not forgiving one another, doing something wrong to someone. And we've been told and taught that hurt people hurt people, and I understand that. There's a cycle of this, a cycle of how we mistreat one another. But here's what Jesus wants to do in your life. He wants to stop that cycle. As you turn your eyes upon Jesus, he wants to do deep healing in hurt, hurting places in your life so that you no longer will be a carrier of hurt, a carrier of anger, but one who brings peace and mercy and pureness of heart. So here's what we need to do. The Holy Spirit may very well have put a name or a face right in front of you today. Someone who you've hurt or someone who's hurt you. You need to fix that ASAP. Our Father, the application of this requires great strength that only the Holy Spirit can give. So I pray this morning that you would be pleased to help us to live out your word in our lives. We can't do this in our own strength. We don't even want to do it sometimes. But Lord, you can cause us to desire to do it. And we know that you no longer want us to presumptuously enter into your presence, whether it's Bible or prayer 
or proclamation or praise and harbor sin in our hearts towards one another. So Lord, in the hearing of your word, I pray for the deep healing work of the Holy Spirit today. For Jesus' sake, I pray, amen.